junior high. The bigger question is, how many of you remember junior high? <laughs> Do y'all remember the term metamorphosis? One of those things that you had to study somewhere along the way, that complete and profound change from one thing to the other. One of the most vivid ones we all watched or saw at some point when a teacher or a prof was trying to explain to us metamorphosis was what? The caterpillar to the butterfly. Got one for you this morning. Watch this transition take place. No matter how many times you see that, you still have to be amazed at God's handiwork. You still have to look at that and be impressed with what it is that God has done and how he's designed nature to work. But when I watch that change take place, I'm probably as awed by that as much as anything. It'd be one thing if the caterpillar just grew another half of an inch. But when you realize the transformation that has taken place from being able to walk to fly from going to be plain to magnificently beautiful, from not only just simply that little bit of a change, but this incredible transformation is something to see and behold. Now, if you've figured it out, you probably already know where I'm going this morning with that illustration. Peter has been telling us all along, I just want you to know God is doing some amazing things in your life. And God wants to take you through an amazing transformational process. And to become everything you've been designed to be. He's writing to people in this particular context, in all of Peter, to people who are really wondering, where is this going to lead? People who are going through very difficult times, very uncertain days, have to be wondering to themselves, where is this going to go? And will it be worth it all if I stay faithful and committed to Christ? In the midst of all of this uncertainty and diversity, will it be worth it all? i got to imagine if the caterpillar had a reason or a, the ability to reason and think he's got to wonder the same thing where is all this going and why do i have to go through all of this to become that and what will that look like for you and i as believers in christ peter has been reminding us that god is doing an amazing work in our lives he's reminding these people who are going through all of that uncertainty god loves you he cares about you he'll be with you in every part of that journey and I just want you to remember, if you stay connected and faithful to him, it will be worth it all. You may not understand it. You may not even like it now. But I guarantee you, if you stay faithful and committed to him, it will be worth it all. And Peter's been continually reminding them of that theme. Over and over again, he's been pointing out the difference that Christianity makes in the life of the believer. When you come to faith in Christ, it's more than the fact that you listen to different music now. It's more than just simply doing something different on Sunday morning. It is a radical transformation from one thing to the other. If someone saw you before Jesus and now they see you after Christ, they look at your life and say, wow, what a change God has made. 
They may not be interested in it. They may not like it. They may not be happy with the change in you, but they have to recognize it. And many times, many people will be drawn to that when they see this change that has taken place. Peter wrote to wives in that particular context a few Sundays ago when he said, look, just by your behavior, by your demeanor, by how you look at life, how you embrace life, how you live your life, many will be drawn to that. My hope, Peter would say, is that your husbands who do not know Christ would be drawn to that. But the broader picture over and over again, Peter has been saying, been saying look, I just want you to know that God is doing an amazing work in your life. And if you stay faithful to him in your life, in your marriage, in your home, in your family, in the marketplace, it will be worth it all. That God is doing a wonderful change in your life. Stay with him all through the process. I want you to turn with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 8 to 18 and then move to chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 to 18, then move to chapter 4, 1 to 5. I'm going to combine this morning two sections that say similar things as we work through this process of what God's in teaching us. Finally, now all of you, no one is left out. Talking to people in the marketplace, been talking to husbands, talking to wives. Now he's saying, all of you, I'm leaving no one out. Do this, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love each other, be compassionate, be humble. Don't repay evil for evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. We respond to life different. We respond to each other different. We respond to evil differently. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are the... For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Don't fear their threat. Be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ would be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He put to death. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Now move to chapter 4, verse 5, 1 to 5. Therefore, in light of what I just said, in light of what Christ has done, since Christ has suffered in the body, arm yourself also with the same attitude. For whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. It's no longer what I do. As a result, they don't live the rest of their earthly lives for human evil desires, but rather for the will of God. For he spent enough time in the past doing what they used to do or the pagans chose to do. He lived in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgy, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They're surprised that you don't join them now in that reckless, wild living. And they heap abuse on you, but... Just so you know, they will give an account to him who's already judged the living and the dead. This whole section flows, I believe, honestly, out of 1 Peter chapter 2 when he said, Dear friends, I would just want you to know, live such a godly life in front of people that they'll be attracted to the God that you serve. He finishes in verse 12 of chapter 2 by saying, Live such a good life that even though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they'll see your good deeds and they'll glorify God in the day he visits us. He's been saying over and over again, everything you do is an opportunity to share your love, share the life, Share the transition as Jesus made in your life. And hopefully through that process, draw people closer to God. He's been addressing that subject in the marketplace. 
He's been talking about it within the context of the home. He's been talking about it within the context of the marriage. Now he relates to it as to how we relate to one another in the family of God. He reminds us again in this particular verses that I read as to how we as believers are to live in a difficult environment. He reminds us of the noticeable differences that Jesus makes. And he reminds us of future consequences. Look at verse 3 or 8 for a minute of chapter 3. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love each other, be compassionate, and be humble. When Jesus was on this earth, he said a number of things about his disciples and what they would look like. He said a number of things to them, and then he continued to look beyond them to you and I who follow him. He said, you'll be able to notice which ones are mine. You, you need to remember that there were a number of messiahs running around, as always have been, and a number of messiahs running around in those days, and a number of people who claimed to be disciples of somebody else. When Jesus said, you'll know which ones are mine, it'll be obvious. Now, the one that we quote the most is, you'll know which ones are mine by their what? By their love for each other. And that is true. In the midst of all the disciples out there and all the people that claim to be following a Messiah, you'll know which ones are mine by the way they treat one another. He also said in another chapter in the book of Matthew, you'll, you'll know which ones are mine by the way they serve each other. See, the disciples were arguing over who had the greatest impact in the kingdom and who would be most recognized and where they would fit. And when it was all said and done, one wanted the right hand and the left hand. And they'd been arguing about that at whose seat at the table since Jesus was around. He said, look, my followers don't live life like that. They're not worried about so much of an organizational chart as to who's at the top and who serves who. My followers serve each other. They care about one another. They lift up each other. They don't put one another down. Peter here is not telling us that we all have to agree or think the same, not at all. He's not telling us that everybody has to think the same thing and agree on the same subject and say everything the same way. He's calling for harmony and unity, not uniformity. He's calling for cooperation in the midst of diversity. As believers, he simply says, you ought to be able to live in such a way that others notice that and recognize that. To be like-minded, to be sympathetic, to love one another, to be compassionate, to be humble, to not repay evil for evil or insult with insult. Believers in Jesus Christ ought to be able to disagree with one another in a godly, biblical way. We don't all agree on every subject. We probably wouldn't all agree on many subjects. But as believers in Christ, our disagreements need to be laid out and carried out and played out and fleshed out in a different way than the world. We don't yell at one another. We don't point fingers. We love and we understand and we hopefully listen to one another. But he said as believers in Christ, we just do things differently. Remember, you don't always have to be right. You don't always have to win every argument. You don't always have to get your point across. Many times it's just an opportunity to listen and learn from one another so that we can get through that process of with all of that differences and all the, uh, the diversity and doing it and understanding one another in a biblical, godly way. One of the things, in the 50 things that bother me about politics in the election is how we lump everybody in the same categories. You do know that all Democrats don't believe in abortion and gay marriage, right? You do know that all Republicans aren't wealthy and ignore the poor. Don't you wish every once in a while when they were interviewing someone in the political arena on TV, they would just simply say, Senator so-and-so from Texas or Congressman so-and-so or so-and-so from New York instead of that D or the R at the end of their name? Because to be honest with you, if we're really not careful, we have a tendency to listen more intently or write them off even if they have a legitimate opinion because of their political affiliation. I heard people in this last election base people's Christianity on how they voted. 
I think Peter would say, look, you who are followers of Christ, you do it differently. You may disagree dramatically from people's stands on certain issues, but you do it differently than the world does. Peter's saying we believers ought to be the ones who know how to treat one another. It ought to be noticeable. As believers in Christ, we need to be sympathetic and compassionate because of our affiliation with Jesus, not because of our affiliation with a political party. Matter of fact, we're not only required to love each other, we're commanded to love our enemies and those who abuse and disagree with us. Peter basically says you can live on one of three levels. You can return evil for good, hand signal for hand signal, yelling for yelling, and all of that, no matter what happens, and you can live that way. But it's really not godly way. It's more a way Satan lives. You can return good for good or evil for evil. That's pretty much the human level. But to return good for evil, that's the divine level. You just treat people and you respond to people in a very different way. You see, we want justice, and rightfully so in many situations. But God continually operates in a different plane. Many times he operates on the basis of mercy when really he should give justice. We want blood. Jesus said, I've already shed mine for the loss of the world. Christians have been radically changed, dramatically changed from what they were to what they are. They react different. They look at life different. They love different. They live different. They respond different. Verse 10, he says, you will to love life. That's interesting as opposed to saying you will love life as if he's pointing to us. Basically, he simply says it's a choice. You can choose how you're going to respond to life. You can either endure life, you can escape life, or you can enjoy it because you really do know that God is in control. He states it as if it's our decision to determine how we respond to the world around us and how we react to people. He continues to remind us of the power of, of the tongue. It's interesting that all of these authors, James and Peter and Paul, all remind us of the power of the tongue. And he does it here in this particular context in verse 10. James says, I, I, honestly, I'm, I'm confused at times. I cannot believe that something so small could do so much damage. I can't believe that something so small in a human body could do such destruction and cause so much pain. And that's why he reminds us again, if you're going to love life and see good days, keep your tongue from evil and be very careful about deceitful speech. Psalm 141 says, set a guard over my mouth. That's a prayer I pray on a regular basis. God said a prayer over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Help me to respond in a biblical way, in a godly way, in a, in a way that pleases you. Verse 11, we, we abstain from evil, not because we're supposed to, but because we really don't like it anymore. God has made such a radical transformation in our life that we just don't want to live that way anymore. We don't want to go that direction. He reminds us of the same thing again in chapter 4. Verse 12 is a fascinating verse. There's two sides of it. One that you can't help but ignore that probably brings you ought, ought to bring you and I amazing amount of joy. And ought to be something we listen to in the other half of that. Verse 12 said, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You ought to love the first half of that verse. There are times I've been with people and they wonder if God's hearing, if God understands. And when I look at verses like this in Isaiah, when it says God bends his ear over heaven to hear the cry of his children, it reminds me that God isn't something that I have to pull on his shirt to get his attention. That when his child prays, when his child asks, he's there to listen. 
All of you, I'm sure, were shopping. Any of you do the midnight crash on Thursday night and Friday and all the way into Friday and just spent all the time going after all of those bargains and fleshing out and running through people and all of those kind of things? If you were there, I had one thing that I wanted to get, and I, the deadline was 3 o'clock on Friday. Guess when I got there? <laughs> 10 to 3. But avoid the crowd. You can't help but be in a setting like that with all kinds of people around to watch these little kids that are just tugging on mom or dad's shirt, sleeve, pants, whatever, trying desperately to get their attention. And the parents got three of them running around trying to get everything done and all this stuff that they need to do. And that child is pleading and crying and wondering if they ever hear, will they ever listen? And you have all, I'm sure, at some point or the other seen that picture. I love the opposite picture that God gives us when he said, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears attentive to their cry attentive to their prayer. God listens. God bends his ear over heaven. No matter where I've been, what I've gone through, how difficult my environment is, I'd love to know that at any moment I call on him, he's right there. He texts me or call me or leave me a message or email me. I'll try to respond in a short amount of time at a reasonable amount of time. Sometimes I even forget that it's been through there and it slipped past my screen and I've never responded to it because I've only got room in that screen for five or six and it's gone. I just want you to know that God is always attentive to your cry, always will listen to your prayer. But he also gives a warning in this. Same warning he gave to husbands at the end of verse seven when he said, look, I just want you to treat your wife in a biblical godly way. I want you to treat her with love and tenderness in an understanding way and with respect so that nothing hinders your prayer so that that block isn't there. He says a similar thing here in this verse when he said, I want you to know that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And he doesn't always hear. Verse 60, Psalm 66, 18 said, God will not hear me if I had iniquity in my heart. So you want the channel clear and you want the channel clean. Verse 15, he said, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. And then he goes on, and I'll share with that in a minute. But you can't miss that revere Christ as Lord peace. You've probably heard it a dozen times before, but we refer to Jesus as our Savior, and rightfully so in our symbolism of the Christian Missionary Alliance, we respond to Jesus Christ, our Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King. And you ought to know Christ as your Savior. I hope you do. I'll give you the chance at the end of the sermon this morning to make sure of that. But that's when you cross the line, you recognize that Jesus is the only hope, and you're a sinner, and without Jesus, you have no hope. And the only way to heaven is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, not based on how good you are or the fact that you sit in a church or your church affiliation or identification or any of that. Living in America, none of those are. The only way to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the only way into heaven is having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and inviting him into your heart and seeing him as your savior. But that's where you start. It's not where you finish. And so many people just simply cross the line. They want to know, they want to know for sure that they're going to go to heaven when they die. And so they cross the line, they invite Jesus into the life, but that's kind of all of Christ that they want. And Peter said, there's so much more. You want to see him as Lord. You want to see him as somebody that you humbly submit yourself to every day of your life. That when you wake up in the morning, you say, Lord, it's not only knowing enough to know you as my Savior, I want to know you and revere you as my Lord. The one who directs my path, who guards my mouth, who keeps me from doing the things that I shouldn't do, who always wants to give the blessing for the cursing, who always wants to show the love for the people that flip me off. I want to be able to let you see or let them see Jesus everywhere of the day. I, I, so I, I, every day, God, I, I just submit myself to you. And the things that you show me that I, I shouldn't be doing anymore, I want to get rid of that stuff. I want to be more and more like you every day of my life. So the longer I'm in this journey, the more like Jesus I want to become. And that's when you see him and understand him as Lord. 
And then he goes on with a fascinating verse, one that we probably have heard before. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope you have. Do it with gentleness and respect. And verses many oftentimes used within the context of witnessing, of sharing my faith, and rightfully so. But it's more than that. It's being able to understand what you believe and why you believe it. And many times even being able to defend that in the midst of those who don't understand where you're at. I'm on a board of directors for the Christian Missionary Alliance, and three times a year we fly to Colorado Springs. Every once in a while I fly into Denver and drive down to Colorado Springs with a really good friend of mine, Dave, who's a pastor of the Fairhaven Alliance Church, an amazing church that God is blessing like crazy. This time in October we did and got in the car and we're driving out of the Denver airport and he said, are you hungry? And I said, sure, I haven't eaten since this morning. He said, all right, let's stop at Chick-fil-A. Well, every Christian's got to stop at a Chick-fil-A, right? And, why, and rightfully so. It's an amazing place and God has blessed them in wonderful ways because of their commitment to Jesus. One of the unique things about Chick-fil-A is their service. What I love about that is it's service without a tip. Not because I don't want to give a tip. I'm just amazed by the fact that they serve without expectations in that realm. They just love to serve. So Dave and I are sitting over in the booths or over in the corner sitting on a table and this little girl, 16-year-old girl, brings our stuff over and comes back again to make sure we're okay. And I said to her, honey, this, this just, I'm amazed by your service. And she talks about Chick-fil-A and what a great place they are to work for. And then she stood there and talked to us for the next 10 minutes. And I didn't want her to get in trouble, but I wanted to find out what was so unique about her. And, and so I asked her a little bit about herself. And of course, she asked us, what do you guys do for a living? And you're always debating that as a pastor. You don't know how that's going to be received. And so we both said we were pastors. And she said, well, I'm a Mormon. And I said, well, tell me about your faith. In the next 10 minutes, that girl told me, 16-year-old girl told me more about her faith than most 16-year-old evangelicals that I've known all of my life. And the sad thing is, she doesn't have the truth we do. But that girl knew what about her faith. She knew the foundations of her faith. She knew the depth of her faith. She knew why she believed what she believed. She knew all the layout of the faith. She knew who she embraced. She knew why she was doing her missionary service. She knew every single thing as a 16-year-old girl. You can imagine about her faith. And I wonder how many 16-year-olds in so many contexts across churches in America who've been in a church since they were little could defend their faith the way they do. And you and I have the truth. Not only as believers are we encouraged to have an answer for the fact that our faith is challenged, there's an inference in here that we never waver from our convictions. He not only says, I want you to make sure that you understand the faith that you have and the depths of that and why you believe what you do, but here in this particular context, it's not used so much within the context of witnessing for witnessing's sake. It's used within the context of being able to defend our faith when it's challenged and determining whether or not I'll stay true to my convictions. Every so often, you and I both need to take an honest look at our life in those challenging moments that we're in sometimes when our faith is tested, when our convictions are tested, when we're in that environment where it's easy to go one way or the other and ask ourselves these questions, am I or have I ever sunk to their level or do I try to bring them up to mine? When my faith is challenged or people find out I'm a believer, do I find myself standing firm in my convictions or sinking to their level? Simply put, do I listen to their stories? And tell some of my own, do I swear like they do? Do I drink just because I want to fit in? Do I give in to the pressure of my environment or do I stay true to my convictions? 
whether it's in the context of marriage or preparing for marriage or whatever I've said over the last few weeks, that is a huge statement that every single one of us ought to be able to understand. Peter is not just reminding us that we need to have a faith in Christ that gives us the ability to share that faith with other people. It reminds us that we ought to have some solid convictions in our life that no matter how we're challenged, we're able to stand firm and solid in that because we know what we believe and we know why we would believe it and we would never waver from that. Peter's encouragement, stay true, true, true to your convictions. And then he gives us a reminder. The first four verses of the fifth chapter remind us of the fact that we're not going to do what we used to do. We just want to stay away from that. God has radically changed our life, and this is what we want to be right now. And many people won't understand that. And then Peter simply says in verse, four of, or verse 5 of chapter 4, remember, they're all going to stand before God someday. And it reminded me, obviously, as I read that, of the broader context. Every time I speak at a funeral service, I'm reminded of that very fact, that we're all going to stand before God someday. Peter says in this particular case to all of them, but as I said to you as I began this series, every so often you've got to back up long enough to make sure that you understand all of what Scripture says about a particular subject. And the fact that it is, not only will they who are walking their own way, walking away from God, going to stand before God someday, all of us will. When I began ministry, I kind of made a naive assumption that the majority of my funerals would be for older people. I realized how naive that was. But for those first two years of ministry with my senior pastor, who I loved and adored, that's what I assisted in doing. Got ordained in September of 1980, which I know for some of you is a date you can't even remember because you weren't born. Moved to a little town near Johnstown, Pennsylvania called Beaverdale. Virgil Lucas, believe it or not, mother was on my board. They had moved into a school building on the flat end of town and had this other building up in the top on a hillside that they hadn't been using. And I asked them what they were going to do with it, and they said, we're not sure, we're trying to sell it. And I said, can Connie and I turn it into a youth center? They said, sure, and so we did. We got pool tables and ping pong tables and all kinds of stuff, and kids were coming from everywhere. We started, I think, in October, and Christmas or Thanksgiving weekend, a number of kids have been coming off and on, and, and we were having a great ministry with these kids, and Thanksgiving week, the church had just flooded our home with bags of goodies and food and all kinds of things, and I didn't know uh, where it had all come from, but we were overwhelmingly blessed as a solo pastor in that unique situation, and the phone rang. It was one of the moms of the kids that we were ministering to, and her 16-year-old and 17-year-old were out shooting and playing with guns, and the 17-year-old stuck a 22 with birdshot in it underneath his brother's hat to shoot his hat off and kill him. And that was my first funeral as a new pastor in this little church. A few months later, I'm having a funeral for a two-year-old. A little while after that, I'm having a funeral for a nine-year-old boy who was run over by a pickup truck on his way to do a delivery of paper that morning. And a little while after that, I've got a service for a 21-year-old Marine. And now I'm looking at those first two years of preparation, and I realize that it didn't prepare me for this. And all of a sudden, I realize how very quickly in a very young age how fragile life was. And how unpredictable it is. I'm often asked, where is God when tragedy strikes? And my answer is usually the same. He was in the same place when his son was dying on the cross. For you and for me. They always ask me why it happened. And to be honest with you, I don't know. But I've said to them, there are, these are three things that I do know. One is all of us will die. The second thing I know for sure is we will all stand before God. And the third thing I know for sure is we never know when that will be which is why Peter and Paul and James and Jesus kept saying over and over again, be sure your 
the other. Be sure you know what you believe and why you believe it and the change that Jesus made in your life. And be sure you're ready. I can give you all kinds of verses this morning from Hebrews 9 when it said, just as all people are destined to die, we will all face judgment. I can give you verses from Corinthians when Paul said, I just want to remind you that every single one of us will appear as believers before the judgment seat of Christ. I can read that Revelation 21 says that those who do not know Christ, whose names aren't written in the book of life, who haven't made that transition from darkness to light, who haven't embraced Jesus as Savior, whose names are not written in the book of life, will be condemned to hell for eternity. There are all kinds of verses that I can read to verify the fact that I am absolutely certain on those three things. As sure as I'm standing here, as sure as you're sitting there, we will all die. And we will all stand before God. And we never know when that will be. So I want to make sure that I've changed from darkness to light. And I want to make sure that I've turned my back on all that stuff that I used to do and be so that I can be the kind of believer that God wants me to be. And I can know that when it comes, whether it's young or old, I can look him in the eye and know that I've lived a life that really was dramatically different that people noticed. Every so often we show you a my story of people in our church setting, people I've come to love and adore through the years together. And two people this morning, Nate and Tracy, are going to share their story of going from that transition from what they were to what they are. And I know them well enough to know they'd never go back. Watch their story. And then I'll close. Hello, I'm Nate Stedman. And I'm Tracy Stedman. And this this is our story. I spent my entire teenage years and the majority of my 20s living a very unchristian lifestyle. Uh, I had always sporadically gone to church um, growing up, but never truly had a relationship with God. When I was 18 years old, I went to college and I really stopped going, mainly because throughout my life, Church had always been seen as something that I thought I knew I should do or something that I pretty much had to do. Um, So from that time of 18 to maybe 22, 23, I felt that I was quite lost in my faith. In my late 20s, I met the love of my life and we fell in love and shortly thereafter found out we were expecting our first child. It wasn't as planned. but nonetheless, we were very excited. About one month into my pregnancy, I found out that I was diagnosed with cancer, and it kind of turned our world upside down. I'm struggling with the thought of being a father, as well as the woman that's carrying the baby is sick, is ill. How are we going to get through this? We were looking for answers, and we really didn't know where to turn. I was always blessed with a very uh, supportive family, and never truly relied on them, probably out of shame from the life that I had been leading. And uh, I just was so lost. Um, Tracy's family, her mother and her sister, invited us to a service at Community Alliance. And we thought, why not? Um, You know, we're not going anywhere else. There's nothing else really going on this Sunday. So let's go ahead and see what this is all about. And I found that when I came, it was really the only time that I felt peace at all. The messages we heard from Pastor Denny spoke to our hearts and definitely gave us the peace that we were looking for. Uh, It gave us some guidance. It answered some of our questions. 
of what to do with all these emotions and these fears and anxieties. September 9th, 2004, that was the day that uh, my daughter was born. And it was at that moment that I think I truly opened up and began to understand that there's so much more to live for than just myself. That was the moment that I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I feel like I lived the majority of the beginning of my life in, in an unchristian way. And I'm excited that I have the rest of my life to live this, this new life that, that God has given me since I've accepted Him as my Savior. We are now happily married for six years. We are now uh, just enjoyed the birth of our second child in 2010. My daughter wants to be here. She has her children's Bible and she's reading that word of God to our two-year-old two son. And I hope that we can continue to bring people to the church so that they can find what we've already found here at Community Alliance Church. I'm Nate Stedman. And I'm Tracy Stedman. And this is our story. What's yours? Every one of us have one. I know Nate and Tracy well enough to know they would never go back to what they were because of what Jesus has done in their life. I hope that's true of your life as well. A bigger question is, do you know for sure where you're at with Jesus? Emma and I share the same birthday. Nate and I share the same birthday in the sense of his spiritual transformation and my physical one are both on September the 9th, so that makes us close. But I know them well enough to know they'd never go back. I trust that's true for you. Every single one of us will face God someday. And my responsibility is to make sure you face him with your head up and your eyes wide open and you know for sure where you're going to go when you die and you know for sure that you live the kind of life that you would be pleased with and that you know he would be pleased with and that that's your desire. You're perfect? No, not at all. Not even close. But every day, desiring to be more and more what he designed me to be in my home, in my marriage, in my life, in our church family, in the world around me. Strong, solid to my convictions and keeping my focus on Christ. I know that's your desire. Some of you are far better at it than me. But for those of you who aren't even sure where you're at this morning, I want to make sure today is the day that you know for sure. So let's pray. Bow your heads. If you're here this morning and you heard me say that every one of us will die and you will stand before God and it scares the daylights out of you. You can walk out of this place today without any fear and without any reservations of facing that day. It's a matter of recognizing your sin and knowing that you need a Savior and He's the only one. There's only one way to God and it's through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we offer that to you this morning so that your life can be changed forever. If I can pray for you this morning as we close, you're uncertain about your future but you'd love to be. Raise your hand right now and I'll pray for you as we close and I'll give you a chance. All right, thank you. Anybody else? Okay. Father, you know our hearts. I love that. Not only bend your ear over heaven to hear the cries of your children, but you know everything about us. We're fearfully and wonderfully made in your sight. We're so delighted that we can be your children, so delighted that you know us that well. For some of us here this morning, that scares us because you do know us well. And so, Father, I pray that as we continue to process your word, that we will live it, not just simply understand it and, and receive it, but that we'll live it. For those this morning who are uncertain about their future, I pray right now in the name of Jesus that you will give them the courage to reach out to you 
to acknowledge their sin, to receive you into their life, to accept you as Savior, to live their life for you from this moment on, and to know beyond the shadow of a doubt on November the 20th, 2012, they were certain about their future in you. I thank you for the privilege of being able to know that you give us answers to life and eternity and that we don't ever have to wonder about it. So we're so thankful for your word and the security that we have in you. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray.